0: This morning we'll be hearing from Paul's letter to the church in Galatia in the book of Galatians chapter 5 starting with verse 1. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Mark my words I Paul tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. You were running a good race. Who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? That kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. A little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. I I am confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. The one who is throwing you into confusion, whoever that may be, will have to pay the penalty. Brothers and sisters, if I am still preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. As for those agitators, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out, or you will be destroy, destroyed by each other. This is the word of the Lord.
1: <laughs> Father, it is my prayer as we open your word that your glory would shine forth that neither my sin, nor my stumbling speech, nor my desire to be known as witty or wise would detract from the glory of Jesus Christ that shines in these pages. Father, will you give us eyes to see, in Jesus' precious name, amen. I don't think it's at all surprising if I tell you that I like cars. Now, I have never owned a cool car the coolest car i owned was a 1979 chevy van so never owned cool cars but in high school my my bedroom was lined with posters of my favorite cars and as a kid i put together lots of model cars and frankly as an adult i've put together a few also a lot of evenings i spend just scrolling through Auto trader, classic cars, just dreaming of the car I would want to buy. I I like cars. Matter of fact, when I was 16, I bought a car before I even had my license. Because for me, having a car and having a license meant freedom. Uh, There was the freedom of, you know, you're bored, and so you can go out and find your friends and, and do something. There was freedom, and if you were having a bad day, you could go on a drive with the windows down and the radio blasting. There was freedom. If there was nothing in the fridge, you could hop in your van and go down to Lupo's and get some Speedies. If you know, you know. So, okay. uh, but I also learned early on that this was a freedom that could be lost. Parents could take away the keys. The state could suspend your license. And I learned painfully that it was a freedom that could be abused with tragic consequences. I lost my good friend Debbie when she got into the car of someone who had been drinking. The freedom that we have in Jesus Christ is a wonderful theme of the New Testament It is a freedom that came at a high cost of Jesus giving his life. It is a freedom that is to be cherished and celebrated. It is one of the glories of the gospel. But through the ages, the church has had to learn again and again and again that this liberty can be abused and this freedom can be lost. So the call comes to us again and again, choose freedom. This morning I've organized this sermon based on Galatians chapter 5 around, I said, I was going to say 4, but I'm holding up 5, around (laughs) 4 images, literal images that help us, I think, understand what Paul is describing in the book of Galatians chapter 5 in these verses that were read. Uh, The first image is of prison doors broken open. And Paul reminds us of our freedom in Christ. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. It is for freedom. Last week I had the opportunity to, actually for the last few weeks, to sit in ACGs that I'm not teaching. And last week I got to sit on one that Audra Kunzman was teaching. And as part of the lesson on Christ she took time and went to the whiteboard and said, okay, let's make a list of names and titles of Jesus that are meaningful to us. And it was a great exercise. We spent about five minutes doing that, and we had titles and names like God and man, Lord, Savior, Friend, Comforter, Healer. Great words on the board. But any list that you come up with in five minutes is going to be incomplete, right? This week I thought of a couple that we left off. Emancipator. Liberator. Freedom fighter. Men like Samuel Adams, Nelson Mandela, William Wallace, they have nothing on Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came to set his people free. But free from what? Well, Free from death and the fear of death. Death is an unnatural intruder into God's good creation. And it is our mortal enemy. When Jesus walked out of the tomb victorious, he demonstrated that he had defeated death and we no longer have to live in fear of death. We instead live in light of the promise that though we die, yet we shall live. So let me encourage you the next time fear of death invades your thoughts, go all dirty hairy on it. Remember Dirty Harry, Clint Eastwood? I don't remember the movies, I just remember my dad loved them. Say to death, go ahead, make my day. What are you going to do? Bring me to Jesus? We don't live in fear of death. We've been freed from it. And we've been freed from Satan. From bondage, enslavement to Satan. In the Gospels, in a couple different places, Matthew chapter 12, Mark chapter 3, Jesus has been out healing and casting out demons. And the religious leaders are saying, by whose power is he doing this? It must be Beelzebub. And Jesus says, don't you know what's going on? You can't go into a strong man's house and plunder it unless first you bind the strong man. That's what's happening. I have bound Satan and I am plundering his house. I am setting his captives free. In Ephesians chapter 4, we get this picture of Jesus defeating his enemies. Of capturing our captors and setting us free. Free from death, free from Satan, free from sin, its power and its guilt. My favorite picture of that truth comes from the classic book Pilgrim's Progress. The main character has been laboring in the beginning portion of the book under this heavy burden he carries on his back. The burden representing his shame, his guilt. His sin, And he walks up Mount Calvary, comes to the foot of the cross, and this burden is released and rolls down the hill into a sepulcher, into a tomb, and is covered over. He's been freed from his sin, as have we. Freed from sin, Satan, free, freed from death, and freed from the law. That's really Paul's focus here in Galatians chapter 5, that we have been freed from the law. So we need to park here. We need to hover here for a minute and think about what it means to be freed from the law because, as one commentator expressed it, this is exceedingly complicated. So we need to think about what it means to be freed from the law because while Paul does say we are freed from the law, He does not say we are free to break God's moral law. Two very different statements. I think we can tweak our customary thinking just slightly on a few things. and It will help us appreciate what Paul is actually doing here. See, we tend to view the Old Testament religion... In salvation in the Old Testament as a works based religion, it was not. It was not a religion of salvation by works. And you get to the New Testament, who was held up as the exemplar of salvation by faith? None other than Abraham. A man who lived by faith and was saved by faith. Moses and the law came after Abraham and did not replace Abraham. The law under Moses had a completely different function. Paul in Galatians, this passage that we're talking about, just a few pages, paragraphs before that. He says, the righteous will live by faith he's quoting from the Old Testament, from the prophet Habakkuk. Old Testament religion was not a works-based religion. We we also have this view that Old Testament laws were, were viewed as burdensome. But Old Testament saints didn't have that view. It was a tremendous gift from God. Just read the Psalms. I delight in the law of God. I love the law of God. It is sweeter than honey. It is more precious than gold. It brings health to my bones. Even Paul, who says, yes, we're free from the law, regards the law as holy, righteous, and good. And we've been told that Jesus unhitched us from the law. He didn't. If anything, under Jesus... The law is intensified. He says in the Sermon on the Mount, you've heard it said, don't kill. I say, don't be angry. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. I say, don't lust. And Jesus summed up the greatest commandment with the word love. Summary of all the law. Again, quoting from the Old Testament. So if all that is true... How are we now any freer after Jesus? And here you're going to have to forgive me. I have a very long quote by John Calvin. But he does such a wonderful job of helping us understand what this freedom looks like. He says, Believers obey the law not as, not as if compelled by a legal necessity. But being free from the yoke of the law itself, voluntarily obey the will of God. And then he goes on to ask us, this is almost a case study. He says, consider the commandment. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy might. He goes on to say, those who have made much progress in the way of the Lord. In other words, incredibly pious people are still very far from this goal. But, he says, the law demanding perfect love condemns all imperfections. How can unhappy souls set themselves with cheerful readiness to a work from which they cannot hope to gain anything in return but cursing and condemnation? In other words, under the law, it demands exact obedience. Yet the best of us know that we do not love the Lord perfectly. So, What hope is there? What joy is there in obedience? He goes on, On the other hand, If freed from this severe exaction, or rather the whole rigor of the law, they hear themselves invited by God with fatherly gentleness, they will cheerfully and alertly obey the call and follow his guidance. He concludes, In a word, those bound by the yoke of the law are like servants. They dare not come into the presence of their master until the exact amount of labor has been performed. But we are not servants. We are sons, welcomed by the Father with liberality. And we hesitate not to offer the works that have only just begun or are half finished. We trust that their obedience and readiness of mind will be accepted, though the performance is not quite as was wished. In other words, because we come to God as our Father, we offer our imperfect gifts to Him out of love, out of joy. Now, the church has had a very difficult time walking in this freedom because there's dangers, on the left and on the right, there's ditches that we can easily fall into on the left and the right. And that leads to the second image. It's the image of slavery. Paul says, "You've been set free from Christ by Christ. Do not let yourselves be burdened again by the yoke of slavery." Now I just said that the Old Testament was not a works-based religion, and it's not. However, there were elements within Judaism that were legalistic. Jesus confronted these elements often in his debates with the Pharisees. He says, Woe to you who tie a heavy burden around people's shoulders! You can't keep the burden you're tying on their shoulders, and yet you use it to keep them from God. And he calls them children of hell. In Paul's day, in the churches he was establishing, a group called Judaizers had snuck in. And they were saying, on top of your faith in Christ, you must be circumcised to be saved. Circumcision wasn't just one part of the law. It was what identified someone as a Jew. In essence, what they were saying is, the work of Jesus needs to be finished by Moses. You must be a Jew to be saved on top of your faith in Jesus. As I'm sure you heard in Galatians 5, Paul does not have nice things to say about these Judaizers. He refers to it as another gospel. He says, I wish they'd just go all the way and emasculate themselves. In another place, he calls them mutilators of the flesh and dogs. Because they oppose the true gospel of salvation in Christ alone, adding their own works to it. This kind of Judaizing legalism, it's not just an early church problem. There's always been a long line of people waiting to bind our consciences with things that are not commanded by God. Whether it was the Roman Catholic Church in the Middle Ages with all their ceremonies and canon law, or the fundamentalist churches that I grew up in in the 20th century. That was my orbit. Very legalistic, fundamental churches. Not really my family, but the orbit of churches we were involved in. Our churches... Our camps, the colleges that were promoted, my extended family, where grace was heralded, but it was in the background. What was pushed to the front was rules. So I heard plenty about don't listen to that kind of music. Christians don't dance, they don't drink, they don't go to movies, they don't go to that college. They don't marry a woman who wants a career. All advice I heard growing up. But the most blatant example of this kind of legalistic Pharisaism has to be the purity culture of the 90s and the 2000s. The purity culture is a label for a movement of the 90s and 2000s that took the biblical sexual ethic that sexual intimacy is to be enjoyed by a man and woman in the context of marriage and protected by the covenant of marriage, and they layered all kinds of things on top of that. Now again, I believe the biblical sexual ethic is good and ought to be held on to. Not just as a path to godliness, but for the common good and for human flourishing. But the purity culture added all kinds of unbiblical restrictions to that. So if sex is reserved for a husband and wife and marriage, well then probably kissing should be too. And your first kiss should be at the altar. And then, well, probably holding hands. Oh, and, and dating too. Man, I got here in 2005 at the peak of this working with college students, and all anyone wanted to talk about was whether you should court or date. Dating was verboten. We court. And all this got turned into a cottage industry of true love waits conferences and commitment cards and purity rings and books and messages and on and on and on, built on scare tactics and false promises that if you keep yourself pure, God will Give you a mate. And if you save yourself for marriage, you will divorce proof your marriage and you will have a great sex life. And the results were predictable. The results always follow legalism, always follow when you add your works as something essential to God's acceptance. Guilt, shame, discouragement, disillusionment. And just as purity culture faded, there were things ready to take its place under titles like radical Christianity. You know, being an ordinary Christian wasn't good enough. You need to be radical. Or the social justice movement. Now, don't get me wrong. Purity is good. Justice is good. But when you begin to layer things on top of it and say, well, you've got to have the right hashtags to be a real Christian. See, once you head down the road of legalism, start adding your own righteousness as a part of the gospel, the lists never end. Paul says if you submit yourself to circumcision, you'll be bound to the whole law. Calvin says once the conscience is entangled in the net, it enters into a long, inextricable labyrinth, difficult to escape. Don't submit again to the yoke of slavery. That's the ditch on the left. Uh, There's another ditch on the right that we have to be careful of too. That's the third image. It's an image of decadence, of indulgence, of licentiousness, of what is sometimes referred to as antinomianism, means against the law. And if on one side the legalists say you have to obey the law to be accepted by God, the antinomian or those who prefer license indulge. The flesh. Because they say things like, well, we've been freed from the law, so anything goes. Our religion is built on grace and forgiveness. And they turn that into a license to sin. Paul says, don't. Don't use your freedom as a license to sin. Don't use it to indulge the flesh. Yes, Christian it is perfectly okay to go to the movies. But not every movie. Don't indulge the flesh. And yes, Christian, it is okay to have a glass of wine or a beer with your dinner. But not to drink to excess. Not irresponsibly. Not given to drunkenness. And when it comes to sexuality, yes, the purity culture was legalistic, But the answer is not to throw out the biblical ethic, to throw out all restraint, to to affirm all expressions of sexuality. No, the answer is to maintain the standards of the moral law and don't indulge the flesh. Throughout the New Testament, the authors are battling legalism in virtually every book of the New Testament and licentiousness. Right alongside it. Paul is saying something about it in Galatians chapter 5. You could read it in other letters of his. Jude, in Jude chapter or verse 4. He warns against false teachers, people who are ungodly, who pervert the grace of the grace of God into a license for immorality, and deny Jesus Christ our only sovereign and Lord. John and 1 John. It says, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. You could look at 2 Peter also, on and on and on. The message is, don't abuse the freedom that Christ has given you. A couple weeks ago, I was sitting with a friend over coffee, and we were discussing issues related to this. He said, okay, Dan, which is worse, legalism or licentiousness? Which is worse, treating things that aren't sin as though they were sinful or treating sin as though it isn't sinful? Which is worse? Both are insults to Christ. Both are insults to Christ. Legalism says, Christ, you're not enough. Your work on the cross to free me from my sin isn't enough. I better do some work too. Your law-keeping on my behalf, your perfect righteousness for me isn't enough. I better add some of my own. Moses better come alongside you and help you out, Jesus. It is a slap in the face to Jesus to think we can offer our righteousness to supplement his. But license is an insult, too. It's saying the freedom that you died to give me, the freedom from sin, I'm going to use that freedom to indulge sin. You offer me yourself as my reward, not good enough. I want you and the pleasures of sin. It's an insult to Jesus. And at another level, it's kind of like asking which is worse anthrax or cyanide both are lethal if not treated but the treatment for legalism and licentiousness is the gospel the full gospel the gospel of ephesians 2 verses 8 9 and 10 for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith and this is not from yourselves It is the gift of God, not by works. Legalism is off the table. It's not by works, so that no one can boast. Christ gets all the glory. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. God doesn't need your good works. Your neighbor does. It's an act of love. You were created as God's workmanship for works of love which he prepared in advance for us to do. Which leads me to the fourth image, service. Paul says regarding this freedom, rather use it to serve one another humbly in love. I don't have many points under this. I'm just going to quote a section of my son's valedictorian speech. It's a great speech. He said, time is a blank canvas of sorts. We have an opportunity to paint on time's canvas however we wish. Every meaningful life experience, a brush stroke, and our own personal masterpiece. Joy is a shade of unrelenting yellow. Failure, a stroke of brilliant red. Heartbreak and sadness, a solemn shade of blue. Sacrifices, a deep and noble purple. And at the end of it all, we can step back from the easel covered in every color of paint imaginable and see our lives reflected in this chaos. And he goes on to say, more than any other stroke, it's the strokes painted in the color of love and compassion, or if we're going to use Paul's words, love and service, that make our life's painting enduring and beautiful. Beautiful. Legalist would say, here's your paint, here's your canvas, don't paint outside the lines, and it's going to be graded. Only the best paintings will be accepted. Those who choose licentiousness, say, here's your canvas. And then they throw all kinds of ugly colors of sin and self-centeredness at the canvas. But the Christian who has been freed by Christ can paint in all the lovely shades of joy and sacrifice and heartbreak, but love and service. And it will be a beautiful painting offered not as a means of acceptance before God, but as an act of worship to God who's already loved us and freed us Christian, legalism is a path to condemnation. It takes so many different forms. Beware of the danger on the left side of the road. Don't fall into that ditch. Because as soon as you let go of Jesus with one hand to grab onto your own righteousness, you lose hold of Jesus entirely. Paul says you're cut off. You'll be lost. And Christian Don't fall into the trap of license, where you lose, use your freedom, abuse your freedom to indulge the flesh. Instead, choose with your freedom to honor Christ and to serve others in the power of the Spirit. That is the freedom for which Christ has set us free. Will you pray with me? Father, in this room and those watching online, there are certainly those who are still ensnared in sin, ensnared in their addictions. Father, we pray that you would give them liberty, that your spirit would break the chains, that Jesus would set them free and they would know the freedom that comes in Jesus Christ. Father, each and every one of us, because pride is ever-present, we're always tempted to begin to add our own righteousness to Christ as though we can only be acceptable if we do it. Kill that pride in us. Help us every day to throw ourselves in the mercy and the grace and the goodness and love of you expressed through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Keep us from sin so that your name may be glorified. In Jesus' precious name, amen.